Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Leverage, the podcast on the politics of aging. I'm Peter Caldas, CEO of the ASA. And on today's episode, we'll be hearing from Bill Rivera of the AAR. All the cases before the Supreme Court that could impact older adults, from cases involving Facebook robocalls to outright eliminating the Affordable Care Act. But before that, I want to welcome Dr. Leanne Clark Shirley of the ASA and our special guest, Michael Adams, CEO of SAGE and current ASA board chair to our roundtable. Welcome, Leanne. Hello. Good to be back. And thanks, Michael, for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. I'm happy to be here. So, Leanne, we are recording this while the Supreme Court nomination uh, hearing is taking place. President Trump's nominee is Amy Coney Barrett. Uh, we'll hear a little bit about her background in the upcoming interview, but I'm, I'm wondering what's your take on how the hearings are going. <laughs> well, um, there's certainly much less talk about beer this time than there was when we had Kavanaugh <laughs> on there. <laughs> a little more serious tone, <laughs> I would say. Um, I, you know, everything feels... Um, high stakes right now. Uh, I think it's partially due to the moment that we're in, but it's partially due to, you know, some of the, some of the cases that are going to be coming before the court. Um, I'm, I'm a gerontologist and I'm a woman, so I'm speaking from that perspective. And sort of two things that are a little bit concerning are, you know, um, her, her hesitancy to really take a stand either way um, during these hearings on how she might think about or act on um, the ACA and Roe v. Wade and some of those, you know, key key decisions. Um, her record is pretty indicative. And when I when I think about all this, I think about it, you know, from a life course perspective as a gerontologist. And I just think the decisions that we make today are going to affect, you know, people's health over the next 50, 60 years. And so that's that's sort of what makes me nervous. Yeah, no, I completely understand. And, and Michael, there are a number of issues impacting older adults that our guests will talk about in this episode. But I was wondering if you could share with us about your thoughts on the implications for LGBTQ rights, you know, um, maybe talk a little bit about this recent dissent that we that we uh, have to we had to read from uh, Justice Thomas and Justice Alito. Sure. Yeah. And um, I, you know, part of what I bring to this conversation is my is my past as an LGBTQ uh, rights litigator. And um, even though I'm uh, I'm no longer active in litigation. Fortunately, you know, Sage and I both get to work closely with um, a number of leading LGBTQ um, legal organizations, and it certainly is the case that um, that there is, I would completely agree, much to be concerned about from multiple perspectives, including from an LGBTQ equality perspective. Um, you know, one of the clear questions is what the future will be um, of the Obergefell decision. That was the decision of the Supreme Court in 2015 um, that ruled that that uh, there is a constitutional right for same-sex couples to marry. Uh, only three of the five justices who were in the majority in that decision are still on the court. And it's fair to say that the justices that they were replaced with are likely to be uh, nowhere near 
uh, as uh, as supportive of marriage equality as a fundamental right, um, as as you know was reflected in, in the Obergefell decision. And so I think we have to be really worried about that whether the court will um, just out and out reverse. Um, the Obergefell decision altogether uh, and ruled that there is no federal constitutional right to marriage equality. Um, you know, similarly, uh, <clears throat> I think we have to have a similar worry about Roe v. Wade um, and whether the the new um, that the new conservative majority will um, out and out reverse Roe v. Wade. And even if they don't directly reverse Roe or Obergefell, um, you know, I think there's a good chance that they're likely to. Um, you know, eviscerate the impact of those decisions with so-called religious liberty arguments. And in fact, that's another um, big LGBTQ rights case we have up at the Supreme Court. It's being argued the day after the election. Um, it's called Fulton v. the City of Philadelphia. And what that case involves is whether a, uh, a Catholic social services agency can um, receive tax funds in a city foster care program and refuse to place um, foster children with um, LGBTQ couples. And, um, you know, I think the there are a lot of reasons to be worried, uh, even before um, Justice Ginsburg passed, there are a lot of reasons to be worried about the outcome of that decision and the potential for a kind of a sweeping ruling from the court in favor of so-called religious liberty over um, over civil rights. And, um, you know, that could then just lay the groundwork for in the future undermining marriage equality by, you know, blowing holes in the right to marriage equality on the grounds of religious liberty. I mean, all of this obviously depends in part on whether um, you know, Amy Coney Barrett is confirmed, but I think there is really every reason to believe that she will be confirmed. You know, they, um, she did a great job of doing what Supreme Court nominees do in these hearings of essentially saying nothing and avoiding all substantive answers. Uh, and so uh, it's hard to imagine that, that her nomination is going to be derailed. So we have to work on the assumption that we're going to have a, um, you know, a six justice hard core right-wing majority um, on the Supreme Court. Yeah, Michael, I completely agree with you. And and one thing on the religious liberty case that you described involving um, the city of Philadelphia, uh, we're proud to have joined your amicus brief, ASA has, uh, because it has such far-reaching implications for um, service providers for service providers uh, uh, to uh, older adults, whether they be LGBTQ or not. I mean, it just seems like this religious liberty exception could just be taken to the uh, extreme. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. And when you think about the fact that that approximately 80 percent of continuing care retirement communities in this country are run by faith based organizations, it, it really becomes very chilling to imagine um, a, you know, that we would be operating in a context where every religious organization has carte blanche to discriminate not only against LGBTQ folks, but against anybody they want based on their religion. And this is not to say, this is in no way to be, you know, to kind of paint a broad brush. And we know that, in fact, you know, many uh, faith-based organizations are very welcoming of LGBTQ folks, um, but there also are many that are not. Um, and for the government uh, or the courts to essentially um, 
confirm the notion that faith-based organizations can use tax dollars while they're discriminating against LGBTQ people. I mean, that's, that's pretty scary. Um, so, yeah. uh, and it has big implications for older people, like you're saying, you know, um, I mean, if, if we get a bad ruling in foster care, there'll be nothing to stop religious organizations from saying we don't want to um, serve LGBTQ older adults because it's against our religious beliefs or, or, or women who've had abortions because it's against our religious beliefs, or divorced people because it's against our religious beliefs. It can just go on and on and on. Yeah, yeah and I that can... discrimination, the effects of that discrimination, they just accumulate over time. And so by the time, you know, people who are younger or even in middle age today, that's just more um, more hurdles and more more negative effects that carry on into their own old age. So I don't think we're talking enough about that, about how decisions made today impact people in the future. I mean, that's yeah. a good point. And the whole notion of a bringing a life course perspective um, to these conversations is so critical. And I think it's one of the contributions that uh, a leader on aging like ASA really can and should bring to this you know, bring to this conversation. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing your views on the Supreme Court. Obviously, a 6-3 conservative court is going to impact the day, our day-to-day lives from healthcare to, to marriage equality to a, a woman's right to make decisions for her body. Um, and so this is a very important issue for our members to uh, pay attention to. So uh, thank you. Thank you very much, both of you, for joining me today. Yeah. Thank you, Leanne. Thank you, Peter. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Next up, I talked to Bill Rivera, Senior Vice President for Litigation and AARP Foundation, about what's at stake for older adults in the Supreme Court. It's not unreasonable to expect that her view of the law and her approach to judging will look a lot more like Justice Scalia's than Justice Ginsburg's very 2020 blue versus red kind of way, you have California v. Texas, and Texas v. California to decide the fate of the Affordable Care Act. Bill Rivera is the Senior Vice President for Litigation at the AARP Foundation in Washington, D.C., and he manages a team of litigators who advocate nationwide for the rights of people ages 50 and older. They address diverse legal issues such as employment discrimination, consumer concerns, and public benefits. Rivera has more than 20 years' experience in law and public policy, especially as they affect low-income families. Welcome to Leverage, Bill. Thank you, Peter. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Bill, after Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death, you and your team published a preview of the Supreme Court's 2020 term, outlining through case examples exactly what is at stake for older adults with the nomination of a new Supreme Court justice. Now that President Trump has nominated Amy Coney Barrett for the position, we thought we'd talk to you about what this nomination might mean for older adults. So let's start with Barrett. What do we know about her? Are there any prior cases impacting older adults? Uh, how is her approach maybe different or similar to who she clerked for, Judge Scalia? Sure. Well, we know Judge Barrett's been on the Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit for about three years. She's authored nearly 100 opinions, most of them for the majority. She's voted in one significant age discrimination case, which I will discuss. And as you know, she clerked for Justice Scalia and has been quite open about his influence on her. 
She's described him as her mentor. And just a couple of weeks ago, after being nominated for the court, she said of Justice Scalia, quote, his judicial philosophy is mine, too. Thus, while it is always difficult to predict how justices will rule in particular cases, let alone how they may grow into their role and evolve over time, it's not unreasonable to expect that her view of the law and her approach to judging will look a lot more like Justice Scalia's than Justice Ginsburg's. So just as an example of one case in which Judge Comey on the Seventh Circuit handled an age discrimination and employment case, she actually handled one of our cases, a case that my team brought in the Northern District of Illinois initially called Kleber versus Fair Fusion, in which we represented Mr. Kleber, who applied for a job that said that applicants must have up to seven years of experience. And so, as one might imagine, that hard cap would have a disparate impact on older job applicants. So, though not expressly using age to select candidates, we believe that criteria such as that would violate the Federal Age Discrimination and Employment Act. And we had lost at the trial level. We prevailed uh, by a two-to-one vote before a panel of the Seventh Circuit. And then Judge Barrett became Judge Barrett. And the Seventh Circuit decided to hear the case on bonk, that is, the entire body of judges on the Seventh Circuit heard the case, and she voted in the majority against us, basically saying that you could not demonstrate discrimination using disparate impact for job applicants under the ADEA. So that is one example. I'm wondering if you could also then now turn to uh, your preview of the Supreme Court's 2020 term. There are, there's lots of really useful uh, case uh, cases that you summarize. I want to focus on just a couple today. Um, first is the case involving the Affordable Care Act. It's under threat again, and uh, there might be uh, a likelihood that it could get shot down. Can you explain the case that's before the Supreme Court next month? Yes. As we say in the preview, the plaintiffs here are hoping the third time is the charm, as we've had the case go up a couple of times before with the majority in each case upholding the Affordable Care Act against uh, challenge. So, this third case basically follows up on the first, as people may recall, the first challenge, the individual mandate that each person buy a basic level of health insurance or pay a penalty under the tax code, and the court upheld the mandate as an exercise of Congress's taxing power in a very contentious 5-4 to four decision. Um, so now, as people may remember with a new administration, uh, Congress had passed a statute, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017, which amended the tax code to reduce the penalty of not having health insurance to zero. So, aha, say a number of states led by Texas and a couple of individuals. If the mandate's constitutional because there is a tax, if you take away the tax, then voila, there is no constitutional basis for the mandate. And more significantly, if there's no mandate, you can't have an ACA because the Affordable Care Act legislative findings say that the individual mandate is essential to creating effective health insurance markets. So this is yet another attempt to strike down all of the Affordable Care Act for being unconstitutional. And in this case, the district court in Texas agreed with the plaintiffs that because there was no tax penalty 
there was no tax and therefore no constitutional authority for Congress to mandate individual coverage. And it went that step further to say that you can't have an Affordable Care Act because the individual mandate is the bottom, most significant Jenga piece here. You really can't have the rest of the statute without the mandate. The Fifth Circuit puts that on hold saying, yes, the mandate is no, not constitutional anymore, but it's not enough to just say the whole thing goes away. The court should go through a provision-by-provision provision analysis of the Affordable Care Act and decide what parts of the Affordable Care Act can stay and which ones have to go. That would take a very long time, so they all went to the Supreme Court and said, you need to resolve this sooner rather than later. And so you have now a rather interesting case where the statute is being challenged under the Constitution, and yet the federal government is not actually involved in the case directly. You have these cases, California versus Texas, because the administration, not being a fan of the Affordable Care Act, declined to defend the constitutionality of the statute. So in a very 2020 blue versus red kind of way, you have California v. Texas and Texas v. California to decide the fate of the Affordable Care Act. It, it is it is very reflective of the times we're in. Um, let's turn to a couple of the other cases. Um, there are two combined cases involving the Federal Trade Commission. One uh, is against a giant payday loan company for, I guess, hidden fees. And the other in which the FTC sued the Credit Bureau Center for using what amount to fake Craigslist ads to lure customers onto its website. I'm curious is this court, does it, would, would this uh, sort of new Supreme Court likely side with the FTC, allowing it to get money back for the consumer, or might it side with the companies? You know, it's really hard to predict in, in all of these cases, the FTC's job being to protect consumers from unfair or deceptive practices, uh, as well as anti-competitive conduct in the markets, as you know, and certainly something that's very important for older consumers in particular, uh, who so often can be scammed. And these really are two cases about scamming consumers. And I think it'll be pretty challenging for the FTC uh, in a number of ways, although a couple of cases recently at the Supreme Court involving the ability of the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, to do what the FTC tried to do in these cases, which is to take the ill-gotten gains from these scammers uh, so that they could distribute them back to consumers. Um, and the court upheld the ability of the SEC to do that in one case, while at the same time ruling that the ability to claim restitution or disgorgement also can be something that counts as a penalty rather than an equitable measure to make people whole. The FTC statute is a little bit different from the SEC, so I think it is going to be an interesting discussion among the court because the statute plainly says that the FTC may seek a permanent injunction, which certainly makes sense to stop a scammer from scamming again. But it is really little comfort then to say that the defrauding company can hold on to all of those ill-gotten gains that it has ripped people off for. Uh, for example, having payday lenders who have 
lied about the fees that borrowers were to incur, be told simply stop doing that, but you can keep the money, or that the FTC is powerless to try to get that money back as part of its equitable power. Uh, likewise, for the individuals or the companies that have the fake Craigslist ads to then not actually have the rentals that people were interested in, but to get them to sign up for expensive monthly credit monitoring services uh, and having the ability to not have the FTC make them give that money back or any portion of that money back. So I think that will be an important case to watch with uh, some potentially interesting splits in the voting. You know, in a, in a similar vein, uh, there's another case involving robocalls, basically, and they specifically emanate from Facebook accounts, is my understanding. Can you explain this case and, and why older adults are often victims of such, such calls? And, and I'm wondering, again, whether, uh, you know, this future Supreme Court will likely side with Facebook in this class action or, or with consumers. Robocalls are one of the most despised technological innovations of our lifetimes, it seems always one of the top sources of complaints. And as with everyone else, having spent the last six months at home, I have a landline, and I think that the only reason I have one is so that I can receive robocalls, uh, given how many of them I get every day. But one doesn't think of Facebook as a robocaller necessarily, and that's one of the interesting parts of this case where the individual who sued Facebook under the Telephone Consumer Protection Act of 1991 was not a Facebook user and didn't give Facebook his cell number and yet was getting texts from Facebook about unauthorized access to his account. He tried to take care of it, but without any success, so he sued. And the question really comes down to what the definition in that statute of the term auto dialer means. And Facebook is arguing that it has to be a particular kind of technology or have the ability to generate random or sequential numbers that can be dialed automatically. That's what makes you a robocaller. And so they don't do that. They have other ways of getting numbers and dialing the numbers. And so the statute doesn't apply to them. The Ninth Circuit on the West Coast said that's too cute. Congress intended to get at automated telephone and uh, automatic telephone dialing systems. So as long as you can dial stored numbers automatically, you're covered. And Facebook says that would sweep in way too much technology. Um, and I think the challenge here is that the Ninth Circuit is notorious for having decisions reversed by the United States Supreme Court. Um, so I think that this is a, a difficult case for the consumers, given the Texas statute and the general sense of history when it comes to the Supreme Court's acceptance of cases from the Ninth Circuit. And this can have significant challenges for older consumers, again, who are frequently targeted for scams uh, by robocalls, by other means because they often live alone, they're more isolated, especially now given the pandemic. Uh, we have a lot of reasons to be concerned about making sure that the protections available to older consumers to protect them from fraud are as strong as possible. You know, these are just a, 
a small set of the cases that you summarize in the preview of the Supreme Court's 2020 term. And I'm wondering if you could perhaps share your thoughts on how a majority conservative court could impact cases related to older adults moving forward. Well, you know, we've had a majority conservative court for some time now, at least in terms of having a majority of justices in any given term appointed by a more conservative administration. Uh, you know, I think we are looking at this uh, AARP and AARP Foundation being among the most frequent filers in the Supreme Court when it comes to briefs and cases. We certainly are very interested in getting a sense as to how particular justices might be inclined to look at the cases that we are most interested in. So, for example, looking back at the last 10 years of cases, we have filed about 78 briefs in cases in which the court has made a decision on cases that we have determined to be important to older adults. And Justice Ginsburg voted uh, our way 73% of the time. Justice Scalia, by comparison, as we discussed earlier, after whom Judge Barrett would appear to be hoping to model herself, voted our way only 33% of the time. So that is a significant difference between the voting records of Justice Ginsburg and Justice Scalia in the cases that, at least over the last 10 years, have struck us as being of particular importance for older adults. And so to the extent that we see a switch of Justice Ginsburg to a potential Justice Barrett, uh, if she is inclined to follow more of a Scalia approach to judging, uh, we would expect to have less success with a Supreme Court that would be more conservative than it has been with the proposed appointment of uh, Judge Barrett. Bill, that is some great insight. I love those statistics, um, and I suspect our listeners will be paying very close attention to uh, the confirmation process if it, if it continues, uh, given all that's going on in Congress right now. But again, Bill, I want to thank you and the ARP Foundation for this really important work that uh, summarizes you know, candidly complicated Supreme Court cases, but I know our ASA members appreciate the hard work you put into it. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you very much, Peter. It's been my pleasure. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of Leverage. Be sure to catch our next episode by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts.